listening to the podcast of Northside Assembly of God in Crowley, Louisiana. We are in the middle of Colossians now. We're, we've been in a verse-by-verse, passage-by-passage series here in Colossians. And uh, we, we just, I love preaching through books of the Bible. I don't do it all the time, but I like doing this because it forces me to preach on certain passages that otherwise I would be prone to ignore. And today's one of those days. We have a doozy of a passage this morning. Um, and it's going to require me to give you some good historical background. I'm going to have to give you some historical cultural background so that we can understand the passage, first of all, and then apply it to our lives. So if you're here and you like getting into the historical stuff in the Bible, the cultural stuff, then you're going to love this message. Um, if you're not really into that type of thing, stick with me. You'll learn something. But towards the end, we're going to apply it to our lives. We'll get into some good preaching towards the end. So there will be something for everybody here. But uh, this is one of those messages I really need you to tune in with me. As my wife tells her first grade class, put on your listening ears and your thinking caps. All right? But you're going to learn a lot. I think this is going to be a, a really important message for us. But we've, got a, uh, we've definitely got our work cut out for us today, okay? The title of the sermon this morning is Everybody's Got a Hungry Heart. I thought that was a clever title. And uh, you guys don't seem too impressed. But, you know, somebody, to me, somebody ought to, ought to write a song to this title. It would be a great song title. Everybody's Got a Hungry Heart. Maybe one day. All right. <laughs> Colossians chapter 2. Uh, we're going to start reading in verse 15. It's actually part of the passage we've been looking at the last two weeks. And now we're going to connect it to this next passage. So I want us to read through this. I'm going to pause every now and again and insert a couple comments. And then we'll pray. And then we'll really dig a little further into the background. So let's look at verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, Paul writes to the Colossian church. He says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities... He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Verse 16, therefore, everybody say therefore. So this word therefore is going to be really important today because it's going to connect everything that Paul's been talking about with what he's about to say. So Paul brings it up. He says, you know what? Christ has won a huge victory. He's triumphed over the devil. And he set us free by the cross. Therefore, all right, therefore, he says, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration. You see what I mean? Or a Sabbath day. We're going to have to dig a little bit. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. I want to pause there. What about this worship of angels thing? It's a little strange. The word worship here in the Greek, it's not the same word for worship that means to exalt or to honor. It actually means more to pray to, to invoke, to call upon, to petition. One of the things we know about the ancient Roman world is that they were really, really into angels. They believed that there was a huge pantheon of angels. 
And each one of these angels had different responsibilities over certain aspects of human life. So, for example, there might be angels who are in charge of your family. There are angels in charge of your business, angels in charge of your health, angels in charge of your fertility. Like pretty much any part of life you can think of, they believe that there were certain angels in charge of those areas. And so there was one particular group of people, we're going to talk about them later a little bit more, they were called the Gnostics. And they believed that if they could figure out who these angels are and what they're responsible for, then we can pray to them, we can invoke and call upon these angels and maybe even massage their ego a little bit. And so if I have a health need, I can pray to these angels who are in charge of my health and they could give me a better health. If I could figure out more about these angels and pray to them, they're going to make my life better. Okay? And so these, these people were looking down on the Christians there in Colossae because they were saying, you Christians, you're, you're only interested in Jesus. All you talk about is Jesus. All you're focused on is Jesus. But you don't understand. There's a whole bunch of angels out there who can really help you. And they can help you more than Jesus can. So if you just focus on these angels and pray to them and, and petition them and, and follow our way of living, they're going to make your life a whole lot better. But you guys, because you're so focused on Jesus, you're out of the game. Like you're not even in the race. You're disqualified from the very beginning. And so Paul's just telling these Christians in Colossae, don't let anybody disqualify you. Don't get sucked into their way of thinking. He says in verse 19, such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual minds. Now, he's referring to people who are really prideful about their excessive spirituality. They have all these visions. They have all these dreams, all these mystical experiences. But Paul says in verse 19, they have lost connection with the head. And the head, of course, is Jesus Christ. You know, I don't know. I've never met a person who's a, who, who can live without a head. Have you ever seen a headless person walking around? You can't live without a head. And Paul's saying they've become disconnected to the source of all life, who is Christ. They're so preoccupied with these mystical experiences. Perhaps you have run into people like this. I mean, honestly, sometimes I feel like a magnet for these people. They, they, they're so preoccupied and obsessed with having visions and dreams and mystical experiences and all of that's fine but what tends to happen with some of these folks is they push jesus to the margins and they still believe in him and all of that but they're not jesus centered they're not centered in the kind of kingdom that jesus came to bring and the kind of life that he's teaching us to live they push jesus to the margins and they're so much more focused on Oh, man, when am I going to have my next vision? When am I going to have my next dream? My next huge mystical encounter? And Paul's saying what's happening with these folks, they become disconnected from the head, from Jesus, who is the source of all life, from whom, he says, the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Verse 20, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world. We studied that a few weeks ago. Why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Don't touch, don't handle, don't taste. Apparently some of these Christians in Colossae had been under the influence of, of this Gnostic group 
with all of their rules. There were certain rules that they had to follow and certain things you can't touch and you can't taste and you can't handle. And so Paul is saying, look, you've been set free from that. You're dead to that. It goes back to that word, therefore, that we looked at the very beginning of the passage. Christ has defeated the devil. He's canceled the very charge of your indebtedness. You're, you're no longer in bondage. You're no, you're no longer under the law. You've been set free. Therefore, why in the world would you ever want to go back to that way of thinking? Don't return to that garbage. He says in verse 22, these rules, which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom. This is verse 23. With their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. Apparently, the, these folks were really into this practice called asceticism, where you would treat your body harshly. We'll talk about why in just a moment. But they would treat their body harshly. And Paul's saying, you know what? All of that may look nice. It may look good. But he says they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Paul's saying these folks, they look holy. They look impressive. They look spiritual. They have all these visions and dreams. He said, but, but ultimately, it still leaves them with a hungry heart. It's not going to satisfy that craving. And it doesn't deliver what it promises to bring them. All right. So you see the passage now. You can see we got our work cut out for us today, right? So let's pray. Then we're going to dig a little deeper. And I think God's got a, a, a huge word for us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your presence here in this room. We're grateful for this opportunity to join together with the body of Christ, not only right here in, in this room, but online as well. There are many folks tuning in, some that will be listening by podcast later on. And I just pray right now, God, that you would help us to seize this moment, to zone in on what you want to say. Help us to eliminate any distractions, Lord, whether internal or external, anything that would distract us from receiving everything that you would intend for us to receive. And we welcome you and invite you to speak to the very core of our beings, transform our lives, and may your kingdom be established in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Everybody's got a hungry heart. This group that Paul is talking about, we see hints of it elsewhere in this letter. But right here in this passage, he just addresses it head on. There was a group of people there in the city of Colossae that were really into this movement called Gnosticism. Everybody say Gnosticism. You'll see the way it's spelled on the screen in a moment. It it's actually begins with the word G, Gnosticism. And Gnosticism, it wasn't like one single religion. It was more like a movement. The word Gnosticism, it comes from the Greek word Gnosis, which means knowledge. And that's one of the things about these Gnostics is they believe they had secret knowledge, hidden knowledge that other people don't have. You know, everybody else, they're just guessing. Or they, they don't even imagine what we know. But we're the Gnostics. We're, in other words, we're the knowers. We're the ones who really know. And when you think of Gnosticism, it, it really was a lot like the New Age movement today. You know, the New Age movement isn't like one single coherent religion. It's more like a mindset. And part of that mindset is, you know, we're really broad-minded. 
and we're really inclusive, and we like to be open to all kinds of different ideas. And the New Age folks would say, you know, we're not like those Christians. Those Christians, they're so focused on Jesus. And they talk about how Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and only through Jesus do we have access to the Father. Well, those Christians are narrow-minded. We're not like that. We're broad-minded. We encompass all kinds of ideas. You see, that's exactly what the Gnostics were like. So the Gnostics would borrow what they wanted from Greek religion. They would take ideas from India and mix that in. They would borrow from Egyptian religions. They were really big into Egypt and, and their religions. And in some of these groups, along with these other influences, some of them, if they had a Jewish background, they would even pull from the Old Testament. And they might even blend in some Christianity as well. And so they would take all these different ingredients, throw it into the pot, boil it down, and whatever they were left with, that would be their own religious system. Now, when you read the letter to the Colossian church, it appears that this group that Paul's talking about is one of these Jewish Gnostic groups. And so along with these Greek ideas and these Egyptian ideas and what's whatever, this particular Gnostic group, they also borrow from the Old Testament. And so they really believed, for example, in... Um, keeping the Sabbath day, the Jewish Sabbath. It was very important. You've got you to make sure you worship on the Jewish Sabbath. And, and along with that, they also really believed in um, honoring all of the Jewish festivals and the celebrations. It was very important to do that. And they also practiced all of the dietary laws in the Old Testament. You know, you can eat this, but don't eat this. You know, like pork, for example. The Jews didn't eat pork. So, so they had rules about that. There are certain kinds of meat we're going to eat, but certain kinds of meat we're not going to eat. And so they believed in, a, in following all of these rules. And then in addition to that, they practiced this thing called, and this was common among the, Nox, uh, amongst the, uh, the Gnostics, is they believed in harsh treatment of the body. Like, for example, they might fast for like crazy amounts of time, go without food for insane periods of time. And the reason why they believed that is because they thought that the more we can follow these rules, and the more we can subjugate our bodies, it'll release our spirits to have more and more visions. We'll be having all these mystical experiences. And the reason why these visions and experiences are so important is because, once again, they believed that there was this hierarchy of angels. And the Gnostics believed that God's glory, God's power, was spread out amongst all of these angels. And each angel had sort of a share, a portion of God's fullness, of God's glory. And the higher up in rank that each angel was, the more of God's glory that angel had. And so the Gnostics believed, okay, the more we can follow these rules and subjugate our bodies, the more visions we're going to have. And the more visions we have, the more knowledge we'll gain about who these angels are and what these angels ranks are and what their names are and then we can learn more about what their responsibilities are well this angel over here he's the one who can help you with any health problems you have and this angel here can help you if you're going through financial problems and this angel over here can help you with family problems so the more we can know about all of these angels then we can use that hidden knowledge to pray to the angels that i need at any given moment and these angels can make my life better does this make sense to anybody? Okay. So this was their sales pitch to the world. They would tell people, listen, if you follow our way of life, 
we can offer you these visions, these euphoric visions like you've never had. And in these visions, you're going to learn about these angels. It's going to fulfill your life. You're going to have access to the heavenly realm. You're going to learn about all these angels that are out there. And you're going to have experiences with these angels. And the more you do that, these angels are going to make your life better right here and right now. See, we're not like those Christians who are telling people, well, one day when Jesus returns, he's going to make everything right. We're telling you right here and right now, we can make your life better if you'll simply follow our way of living. And I'm telling you, I know this sounds like a crazy philosophy, but it was wildly popular in the ancient world. In fact, there were times where Gnosticism was actually an extreme danger to the early Christian movement. And you can see why. It was very appealing to people. And so what was going on was these Gnostics in Colossae, they were looking down on the Christians. And they were telling the Christians, you guys are missing the boat. You're so focused on Jesus. And, and they would say, you know, Jesus, he has a part of God's glory. He's got a part of God's power, a part of God's fullness. But so do all these other angels. And by restricting yourself to Jesus, you're closing yourself off to all these other angelic beings who can really help you. And they would tell these Christians, if you'll just follow our rules, and if you'll just learn how to, you know, subjugate your body, you can have the kind of visions that we have. You can have the kind of experiences that we have. And the more of those experiences you have, you're going to learn more about these angels, and you can use these angels for your benefit. It's going to make your life better. But you Christians, you don't do any of that. You just totally focus on Jesus, and you don't keep the Sabbath like us, and you don't practice all of these dietary laws. And so because of that, you'll never have the kind of life that we can give you. So you kind of see, nod your heads. You, you see what I'm talking about? You see what Paul's having to deal with here? All right, nod your head if you understand. All right, I mean, I'm telling you, this is a tricky passage that I otherwise would never choose to preach on. But, but I think I can help you understand what was going on. And so Paul's having to deal with this nonsense that was taking place. And so right here in this passage, he's going to respond to it. Now, here's the interesting thing about Paul's response. Paul is not against honoring certain religious festivals. You know, if somebody wants to be a part of a Jewish festival, Paul's not against that. Also, Paul's not against it if somebody wants to worship on one particular day rather than another day. That's fine. He doesn't have an issue with that. And Paul is not against somebody who maybe has a personal conviction about what they're going to eat and what they're not going to eat. That's fine as well, as long as it's your personal preference or you're doing it to respect the culture or maybe God's giving you that conviction. That's fine with Paul because, listen, sometimes God may give you certain convictions personally about your life that God may not necessarily give everybody. Okay, for example, Carrie and I feel like God's given us certain convictions for our lives and for our household that we recognize God may not necessarily give to every single household. So I have a 13-year-old son, and I have an 11-year-old daughter, and they're rolling their eyes at me right now. Neither one of them, Carrie and I, neither one of them are going to have a cell phone right now. They don't have a cell phone that connects to an Internet browser. Reagan does have one of our old cell phones, but we've disabled it from accessing the Internet because that's a conviction God's put in our hearts for our children at this stage in their lives. We feel like at 13 and at 11 years old, 
we don't want to give our kids that kind of access. And that's a conviction that's in our hearts. And maybe one day that'll change. You know, maybe one day when they become 35 years old, maybe we'll, we'll let them have a cell phone. But at this stage in their life, we have a conviction about our kids. We don't want this in their hands with that kind of access. But we also recognize God may not necessarily give that exact conviction to every parent. That's a personal conviction. And you know what? Paul's okay with having personal convictions. And you've got to follow those convictions. You know, you've got to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit may not necessarily lead every person in exactly the same way. So it's fine to have those convictions. The problem, though, and this is what Paul's speaking to, the problem is when we take personal convictions over what he calls elsewhere disputable matters, and we try to turn it into a, a law that everybody's supposed to follow. You see what I'm saying? That's the problem. That's why he wrote Romans 12, Romans 14. That's what that's all about. The minute you start taking personal convictions and start wearing it as a badge of spiritual superiority, like, well, you know, in our house, we don't even own a television, but lesser Christians do. See, that's when you start getting off track. When we, or, or when we start thinking that our personal convictions somehow increases our standing before God, that's when Paul really blows a gasket. That's what the whole letter to the Galatians is all about. Because you may not realize it, what you're doing is you're going back to that old law mentality. You're putting yourself back in bondage to the law. The minute you start taking your own deeds, your own standards, your own personal convictions, your own practice of spiritual disciplines, and you think that that somehow improves upon what Jesus has already accomplished for you on the cross of Calvary, well, now the whole game changes. Because now it's like you're trying to climb this ladder to get to God rather than just simply resting in His grace and resting in His mercy. And now that changes everything. Say amen so I know you're here. Our standing before God has got to be 100% rooted in the character of God and the person of Jesus Christ and what He's accomplished for us on Calvary. And the way we live our lives expresses that righteousness, but we don't acquire it. You understand what I'm saying? Let me say it this way. As a Christian, I want you to listen very closely. This is a tricky thing to preach on. As a Christian... There are certain things that I do and certain practices I have in my life that if I were not a Christian, I wouldn't do them. I'm pretty confident I wouldn't be preaching right now. I wouldn't be pastoring a church. I may not even be in this church right now if I wasn't interested in following Jesus. So there, I know that I wouldn't, have the, I wouldn't commit the time I do to prayer that I do if I wasn't a Christian. So there are certain things I do that I wouldn't do if I was a Christian. On the other side of the coin, there are things that I don't do there are places I don't go. There are sources of entertainment that I don't allow into my mind because I'm a Christian that if I weren't a Christian, I probably would be doing those things. I'd probably at least be experimenting with some of those things. So being a Christian means being a disciple of Jesus, which means you're going to discipline yourself to live in a certain way, and you're going to live differently than you otherwise would. And there are going to be things you're not going to do. There are going to be substances you won't put in your body. There are people that you may not necessarily at stages of your life have relationships with. 
And likewise, there are going to be practices and things that you do take part in that you otherwise wouldn't do. It's going to change the way you live. But listen, I don't do all of that stuff to try to get God to like me. But because God does like me. You don't do these things to try to get righteousness. We do it because we are righteous. See, it's a cart before the horse type of thing. And it's so important that we get this. When the love of God gets a hold of you, God's love is going to compel you to live differently. You're going to be willing to live self-sacrificially. You're going to be willing to sacrifice time and money and resources for the kingdom of God. It's going to change the way you live. But you don't do it because you're trying to get something. You do it because you already got it. You've got the kingdom. You've got the very spirit of God Almighty dwelling on the inside of you. And so we live in a way that expresses that. Amen? Is this making sense? So Paul's telling the Colossian Christians, this is what he's trying to say to them, don't go back to the old way of thinking. You're putting yourself back under the law. And by doing that, you're disconnecting yourself from the head, from the source of all life, who is Jesus. And for Paul, it's really all or nothing. You're either getting all of your life from God in Jesus Christ, or you're not getting your life from God at all. You're either standing before God totally on the basis of His grace, or you're not standing before God at all. You're either rightly related to God through Jesus Christ, or you're not rightly related to God at all. It is all or nothing. It is Christ or nothing for Paul. And these Gnostics were coming along telling the Christians, hey, it's fine that you have Christ. We believe in Christ, but Christ only has a part of God's fullness. Christ only has a a portion of God's glory. But you've got to realize there's all these other angels out there. And they also have a share of God's glory. And if you could just incorporate all of these angels and have experiences with them and learn about them, boy, these angels can really improve your life. But you've got to have the kind of visions that we have. You've got to have the kind of experiences that we have. And in order to have that, you've got to follow our rules. You've got to follow our laws. You've got to watch what you eat like we do. You've got to honor the Sabbath. You've got to subjugate your body and treat your body harshly. And so Paul's writing to correct this, and he's telling them, no, 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 no. He says, all of the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. Everything that makes God God is found in Jesus Christ. If you, know, if you want to know exactly what God is like, you look at Jesus Christ. The fullness of deity dwells in him. Not just part. Jesus doesn't just have part of God's glory. He has the whole thing. He's, the fullness of glory dwells in Jesus Christ. And there's no unchristlike part of God that he's keeping secret from you. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the radiance of God's glory. Now, you can see God's glory in other things. You know, you go out in nature. You can see God's glory in, in nature. You look out at the universe. You look at the stars. You can certainly see the beauty and the glory of God. You know, you can see the glory of God in other people. Although some people hide it pretty well. They bear the image of God. You can see the glory of God in, in precious moments with your grandkids. Amen. You can see the glory of God in, in, uh, in art, in music. God's glory can be found all over the place. But if you want to know the character of God's glory, if you want to know the heart, the, the character of God's essence, 
Paul in the entire New Testament tells us over and over and over again, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. Don't go chasing after some angelic realm to find the fullness of God. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ who died praying for our forgiveness with his last breath. That is what God is like at the very core of his being. End of discussion. Amen. Amen. All right. One last thought I want to give you. What's up with this title? Everybody's got a hungry heart. Let's, let's, let's focus on that for just a moment. Here's the thing. I want you to hear this. Again, I, one of those tricky messages, and I'm hoping you're hearing what I'm saying. Listen, if you're a disciple, you've surrendered your life to Christ, you've got Jesus, and you're in Jesus. But the reality is, even when you're in Jesus and you're knowing Jesus and you're growing in Jesus, there are times and maybe all the time to some degree when you feel empty, you feel vacant, you feel incomplete. And it manifests itself in a lot of ways. For example, maybe you're dissatisfied with certain aspects of your life. Maybe you're disappointed with your life. Maybe you're frustrated because things aren't happening the way that you thought they would. Or maybe you had certain dreams for your life that just haven't come about the way you hoped that they would. Or maybe you're disappointed with your life because you're not quite as fulfilled all the time like you thought you would be. But there's a certain level of emptiness there, even for Christians. And anybody who tells you different is either lying to you or they're deluded. Because everybody can feel sometimes that feeling of emptiness, that feeling of of dissatisfaction with certain aspects of our lives. Everybody's got a hungry heart. And you see, that feeling of emptiness that we sometimes have, even if we don't like it, it's actually a gift. Because it's there as a honing device to keep driving us to pursue Christ. That hunger that's there, it's there to keep us pursuing Jesus. If we stopped being hungry, we would stop pursuing him. We would just become spiritual couch potatoes. And God wants us to always be pursuing him, always seeking after him. But we wouldn't seek him if there wasn't a hunger, if there wasn't some feeling of there's got to be more, right? And so he wants us to pursue him and get closer to him. And so that hunger is there, and it's actually a good thing. And however close you get to Christ, how many of you have learned this? However close you get to Christ, there's always more depths to discover, right? But here's the other thing. However close you get to Christ, until the day when we see him face to face, there's always going to be some incompleteness until he returns. Paul says it like this. He says, I see, it's like seeing through a glass darkly. Like we can see, we can get in touch with it, but we don't see perfectly. It's incomplete. And there's always going to be that feeling, that sense of incompleteness, that lack of fullness until Jesus returns. And so that hunger is there to keep us yearning for the return of Christ. How many of you know we're supposed to be yearning for his return? We're supposed to be yearning for the kingdom to come in its fullness when everything's going to be made right, when all of creation is going to be restored and all evil is going to be completely eliminated from the earth. We ought to be hungering after that. And so by staying hungry, it keeps us from being complacent. It keeps us from being satisfied. And it keeps us looking forward to that time when all wrongs will be made right. 
And so there's this emptiness that we have. But here's the other thing, folks. Listen to me closely. That emptiness that we sometimes can feel, if we're not careful, the devil, the enemy can use that feeling of emptiness as a sales pitch against you. And I see it happen. I watch it happen in people's lives where they go through a feeling where they're just... I, I, I see people who, like, get on fire for God. Man, they're passionate for God. They're here every single week. They're here every single service. They're lifting their hands. They're singing. And then after about a couple months, they drop off the map. And you give them a call. Hey, what's going on? Oh, man. I, and and, and you, they're, like, in a totally different frame of mind. They're just disappointed. Dis- things just didn't turn out for, for them the way they thought it would. And, and, uh, and, and some of those initial emotions just began to wear off. And see, here's what happens, because it happens to all of us. We all have those seasons where we feel a, a, a little bit of a lack of fulfillment, a little bit of emptiness. And what the enemy will come and do during those times is he'll get in your ear and he'll say, oh, you're feeling a little empty? You're not quite as fulfilled as you thought you would be? Well, that's because Christ is not enough. You're feeling a little incomplete right now? It's because Christ is not enough. And if you can get away with it, he'll actually convince you it's actually because Christ is not true. And this whole Christianity thing is just baloney. I've seen it happen in people where they just bail out on the whole thing and they say, you know what? I tried the Christianity thing and it just didn't work for me. It just didn't fulfill me all the time like I thought it would. Which presupposes that we're always supposed to be perfectly fulfilled every moment of our life. Sometimes people think that that Christianity is like this magic pill and once you take it, you'll never have an unfulfilled moment, a dissatisfied moment ever again in your life. And so people say, I tried it, and it just didn't work for me. And it's because the enemy lies to them and says, it's because Christ is not enough. And when we fall for that lie, we start looking for fulfillment in other places, and we become disconnected from the head who is the source of all life, Jesus Christ. Listen very carefully to me. When you go through a season or a moment where you feel incomplete, you feel dissatisfied, you feel a measure of emptiness, It is not because Christ is not enough. Christ is enough. The problem is not with Christ. The problem is that we don't have enough of Christ. But I'm going to tell you something. Even if you had all of Christ that you could possibly handle in a given moment, you're still going to be craving more. You're still going to be hungering for more until the kingdom comes in its fullness. And that hunger is supposed to be there to drive you to keep going after that and longing for that and yearning for more and pursuing him. But it's not because Christ is not enough, but that's the sales pitch. And the enemy comes along and he says, this person will fulfill you or this thing will fulfill you. This habit, this hobby will fulfill you. This religious system will fulfill you. And see, now he's reeling you in. It's like marriage. Listen to me. I'm going to be very transparent with you. There are times in marriage, I'm telling you, there are going to be times in marriage where you're not always going to feel completely fulfilled. You're not always going to feel that feeling of completeness. Happy Valentine's Day, by the way. Great Valentine's Day message. But there are going to be times in marriage, and and y'all don't amen me right here, especially if you're sitting next to your spouse. There's going to be times in marriage where you're like, "I I don't feel understood. I don't feel valued right now. I don't feel appreciated right now. Or my spouse, it just doesn't seem like my spouse thinks I'm as attractive as I used to be. Or maybe my spouse doesn't laugh at my jokes like they used to. Even in the best of marriages, the very best marriages, 
you're not always going to feel 100% fulfilled. You know why? Because that's not even what your spouse is there for. I'm going to tell you the truth. There's not a person on this earth who can fulfill you perfectly. Because the void you have is a God-shaped void. As wonderful as my spouse Carrie is, she can't completely fulfill me because nobody can. Only Christ can. So you're always going to have some feeling of emptiness there. And if you're not careful, when you feel that emptiness, when you feel that sense of incompleteness, that's when the enemy comes along and he starts using it as a sales pitch against you and your marriage. And he'll say, you know what, that person over there, they'll laugh at your jokes. They'll appreciate you. They think you're attractive. That person will fulfill you. That person's the perfect match for you. And now he's reeling you in. And now that hunger that you have, it's actually leading you astray. The same thing is true with our marriage to Christ. As long as you're committed to Christ for the long haul, that feeling of incompleteness, that feeling of emptiness, is actually going to drive you to pursue him more. That hunger is actually going to drive you to, to go after him even more. But if you're not committed to Christ for the long haul, that same hunger, that same feeling of emptiness will have the opposite effect. It'll drive you further away from Christ because now you start listening to the sales pitch. And that sales pitch comes in all kinds of varieties because the enemy's smart. He's been doing this a long time, and he watches your life, and he knows what will work. So if it's a, a religious system that might appeal to you, then he'll give you a religious sales pitch. If it's materialism that will appeal to you, he'll give you a materialistic sales pitch. You'll start thinking, man, if I could only uh, somehow get that new Lexus, I'm going to be totally satisfied. If recognition is what appeals to you, then, then as long as I can just get enough people to like me and know who I am, then I'm going to be fulfilled. All kinds of sales pitches. So I want to close by giving you three things, three things you got to know. Number one, the sales pitch is a lie. Everybody say amen. The sales pitch is a lie. Everybody's got a hungry heart. Anybody who tells you otherwise, they're selling you a bill of goods. And even if they're sincere, they're just deluded. They're sincerely wrong because everybody's got a hunger. Everybody's got a feeling of incompleteness. And the enemy comes along with a sales pitch and tries to get you to find fulfillment in certain things, certain activities, certain substances, certain relationships, whatever it might be. And it never delivers. Listen to me. It never delivers. Some of you have lived this. Like this is the story of your life. You know what it is. You've tried to find fulfillment in other people, other relationships, other activities. And you know it might give you like a short-term buzz. But there are, there are hard drugs that do that. And it may be a wild experience. But it never delivers. It never brings you what it promises to bring. The sales pitch is a lie. Second thing is this. Listen closely to this one. The very thought that you have a right to be fulfilled is also a lie. I don't know if it's just unique to us as Americans, if it's more like a Western thing. But sometimes we have a tendency to think that we have a right to expect to be perfectly fulfilled every moment of our lives. And do you realize right now in the last 24 hours, 30,000 kids starve to death every day? In the last 24 hours, 30,000 kids starve to death. One third of the world lives hand to mouth. They don't even know where their next meal is coming from. And at any given moment, there are like half a dozen major natural disasters that are taking place around the world. Right now in Africa, there are tribes committing genocide 
on one another, and they've been doing it for decades. We live, if you just open your eyes, we live in a painful, oppressed, fallen world. And I want to tell you a hard truth. In this type of fallen world, you will not always be fulfilled. Not now. Not here. Not, not totally. Now, is it true that sometimes we're going to have huge moments of our life that we do feel fulfilled? Let me tell you something. If you stay with Christ long enough, if you pursue Christ long enough, you're going to have huge mountaintop experiences. How many of you know what I'm talking about? I've had these types of experiences. It just feels like, man, you're on top of the world, and Christ has just made himself so real, and it's exhilarating. And you feel like, man, if I could just live on this mountain, if I could just take this moment right here and stretch it out over the course of my whole life, I'll never want anything else again. And you know what? It's true. But as wonderful as those mountaintop experiences can be, there comes a point you got to come back down the mountain and deal with life. Even Jesus had to do that. Our passage for the week is Mark 9, verses 2 through 9, the story of the transfiguration of Christ. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and they go up uh, the mountain, Mount Tabor, and at there at the top of the mountain, there's this unprecedented experience where Jesus is totally transfigured. He's glowing. The glory of God shining. The voice of the Father booms from heaven. This is my son. Listen to him. And Peter, James, and John, they like pass out. They fall to the ground. They're so overwhelmed. Nothing like that has ever happened. And then after a few moments, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and they got to go back down the mountain because there's a little boy down the mountain at the bottom who's possessed by a demon who's causing seizures, and this demon's trying to throw him into a fire, and Jesus has to deliver this boy. And then later on, his disciples start bickering over who's the greatest, and now Jesus has to deal with that. I'm just telling you, as wonderful as your encounters with God can be, you got to come down the mountain sometimes and go back to work and deal with your coworkers and earn some money and change some diapers. So we're thankful for our experiences with God, but the reality is that in this world... There's going to be some emptiness there. But see, here's the last thing. Here's my last point. Even though there's emptiness, and it can, it can show itself in a lot of ways, loneliness, hopelessness, alienation, maybe some discouragement. Even though there's emptiness, Christ is enough. And we'll never have enough of him until he comes in fullness. But I'm telling you, Christ is enough. And it's enough for me to know that when I'm going through a season of where I feel empty, where I feel incomplete, whether I feel it or not, I know that I'm loved. I know my value before him. I know who I am in Christ. Whether I feel it or not, I know what my inheritance is. I know where I'm going. I'm forgiven even in the midst of my emptiness. And it's enough. I know regardless of how I feel, I'm rich in Christ. You're rich in Christ. And listen to me. You don't need to spend your whole life chasing after that feeling of perpetual fulfillment. But God does want you to go after him and pursue him. That's why the emptiness is there. That's why the hunger is there. Everybody's got a hungry heart. Let your hunger drive you to Christ. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. To learn more about Northside Assembly of God, check out our website at www.northsidecrowley.com.